Welcome back to Law Radio. It's Melissa Caston with Troy, and today we're talking about a new report that's been released by the Law Society of New South Wales. Hi, Kate. Hello, Melissa. Good to talk to you. And good to speak to you again. So I thought it was today was a good opportunity to have a look at the new report that the Law Society of New South Wales has released, The Future of Law and Innovation in the Profession. Can you explain to me, Kate, what this report was designed to do? Sure. Um, the legal profession, as those in the profession would know, is facing great challenges uh, wrought by technology. I mean, it's hard to find a part of society that's not undergoing some significant sort of change as a consequence of digital technology. So this seems to be a response. It's I think a really sound uh, response by the Law Society of New South Wales and the Futures Committee to establish um, a base point for the profession in New South Wales uh, for, to assess these changes that are happening and how to respond to these changes. So how did they come to write the report? What was the process of generating the information and the various views that they've come to? Uh, I quite like the way that they've gone about it. They have, through a number of months last year, from I think about May to November, had a series of meetings and received submissions from people in practice, from legal services providers, so in other words, I guess from specialists in what we might call a disrupted profession who made submissions about the effect of te technology on legal practice and the needs for the profession into the future. I might observe that uh, in terms of looking at the future and innovations, it wasn't restricted in its scope to technology per se. So there's a chapter, for example, on diversity in the profession mm. and the effect of internationalisation on legal mm. practice. So it really canvassed quite a wide range of scenarios, if you like, that, are, uh, that comprise the landscape for legal practice in New South Wales and, I'd suggest, across Australia. I mean, I think we've spoken about this before, but the legal profession and lawyers are very, you know, invested in precedent and doing things the way they've been done before and, and we move fairly incrementally. Um, some might say that as a profession we're fairly risk adverse. What do you think are the key findings in this report that are intention with in tension with those kinds of characteristics that we have? Uh, I think that the report does both an excellent job and perhaps a much more cautious job in dealing with the inherently risk-averse nature of the profession. So my first observation is that the report overall is fairly measured. Um, I mean, quite early on, it shows you the the hype curve, if you like, this, mm. this quite graphic representation of when new technologies come on the scene, you know, things like blockchain and everyone gets super excited about them and then within two years there's been quite a slow, steady uptake relative mm. to the hype that's been generated. So mm. this is not an overhyped report by any stretch. It's very mm. measured in its approach and it recognises um, there's a chapter on implementation and it recognises that we need to take quite measured and incremental steps in introducing change. It recognises the risk for people's 
well-being and mental health in trying mm. to rush in drastic changes all the time and it recognises also somewhere in the report the fact that we can become overwhelmed by the pace of change and mm. I think that this is a strength of the report because it offers the profession a much more measured approach to understanding the context within which we're working. Now while that's a strength I think that that also turns out perhaps to be somewhat of a weakness in the report because mm. it anchors our understanding of lawyers and the legal profession and even legal service delivery within quite a traditional mould. And I think that that really imposes some quite strong limitations on the possibilities for innovation. Do you, do you mean because we're still quite captured by that idea of the lawyer who works with the client, the bespoke service that, that you get from your law firm or your specific lawyer? I, or is yeah, it... I think so. I think on the one hand, you know, there's a lot of uh, findings in the report along the lines of, you know, that they recognise what we call the unbundling of legal services. Mm. So we don't, one lawyer doesn't necessarily listen to the client's instructions and then take those instructions through a process all the way through within mm. that firm until they reach a conclusion. We now have outsourcing, there are lots of technologies that come into play that automate a lot of the work and some of that automation is done external to the firm or it's mm. done not by people, it's done by computers. Mm. So there's a lot of ways in which tasks are really broken down legal so that we're not talking about what I describe as a legal matter, we're talking about tasks that together comprise a legal matter and mm. so this requires a different type of skill set. We mm. arguably don't necessarily need a lawyer who's skilled in all the things that go together in, in one transaction or one matter. Uh, we need people who can manage projects, can manage diverse teams mm. across time and space, you know, all, all this sort of thing. So it recognises these features of contemporary and future practice and yet mm. there are other parts of the report that, that emphasise the importance of bespoke legal services. Well, that's my reading of it. Mm. And in terms of legal education, say that we still need to do exactly the same things that we're doing now except add, add more experience with technology. So mm. these things indicate to me that there's still a very traditional understanding of what it means to be a lawyer and the nature of the profession. I guess that brings me to the question then, if we're looking at legal education and educating the you know, 19 to 25 year olds of today for their legal practice you know, going forward 50 years from that age group, what kind of things do we need to be looking at to equip the young emerging lawyers with this future disruption brought about by digital and other technologies and does the report adequately address some of those issues? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think the, the legal education chapter was the shortest of the chapters mm. in the report and to be fair to the uh, to the committee, they're not legal educators. They didn't make any explicit findings. Mm. Um, they simply observed that there was nothing that should be taken out of the existing curriculum, but mm. that um, graduates needed experience with technology. But I think that 
it's the legal education chapter that really offers such a an enormous scope mm. for innovating the profession and for generating the change that's needed to embrace the contemporary raft of technologies that are affecting practice but also developing solutions for the future. And in this respect, I guess personally, because this is obviously my area of interest, it was a little bit disappointing. So what the sorts of things that I think it didn't recognise were the constraints on, on students. The report did mention that it's a challenge to add more to a crowded curriculum and it's true that we're already trying to do so much in, in legal education but I think we're asking, you know, it's that, it's that old saying, we're trying to uh, work harder instead of working smarter about <laughs> these things and in the same way that I think the observations made about the unbundling of the profession, mm. maybe we need to unbundle legal education. You know, well, we've of kind of been always, you know, in this in this paradigm where we have what we call the priestly eleven, which are our compulsory units that every law student must complete. Uh, is the proposal here that we make it the priestly twelve, and there's a twelfth subject, which is you know business, project, and technology skills? Uh, it wasn't prescriptive at all about the way that this would be done. I mean, there was a suggestion that we needed to, you know, add add blockchain and smart contracts to the subject contract and the subject property mm. and there was a, and you know experience technology like e-discovery when you're doing civil procedure and these sorts of things and mm. I just don't think that really grapples with the nature of uh, digital capabilities which mm. is what we're really calling for in our mm. graduates and this mm. is something that higher education globally is grappling with at the moment and it's seen there's been a number of reports and, and uh, commentaries on the contemporary imperative for higher education of generating graduates who are global citizens and who are uh, digitally capable or digitally mm. literate. And I mean, is it, is it enough to just say our students are digital natives and they know how to work Facebook so they're ready to go? Absolutely not. That's totally the wrong thing. Um, and because we can't assume digital capabilities based on an existing set of mm. skills or aptitudes, it's much more than that. So in the same way that, that the citizen might have a basic working knowledge of, of the political system, it doesn't mean mm. that you understand the principles of public law. You know, you mm. still you need to develop your skills in that area. So mm. I think, I think what, what it might mean is that it, in, in terms of the unbundling aspect or the potential for unbundling of legal education, it might be that we have, you know, there's a move afoot in some quarters for what they call the stackable degree. So right. you get a number of learning experiences through different means perhaps and you can bundle them together to generate mm. an overarching qualification. Mm. Now it may be that you don't come out at the age of 22 or 23 as a as a graduate lawyer it may be that you come out with a series of learning experiences and you might have particular components of mm. legal knowledge so you could be a conveyancer or you could be a migration person or you could be a family paralegal or these sorts of discrete areas and you can build them together over time to constitute what we now currently understand to be a lawyer. So that's one mm. way of looking at it. And if you have an undergraduate experience, 
whatever it's called, maybe mm. a law degree as such, where you've, you've released yourself from that imperative of getting those priestly 11 as your, as your foundation, foundation experience. Maybe that's mm. the capstone experience is your priestly 11 and on the mm. way through you've developed these other skills such as project management or mm. understanding how business works or um, effective collaboration and communication in online environments or, or all those other sorts of skills. I think mm. we need to leave our students with more time to develop this suite of skills and knowledge. We can't just say you have to do more in the same or less time that you're presently doing it so you come out a fully fledged lawyer because that's what they're asking for, work-ready graduates. And mm. that means, in my world, that means a fully-fledged lawyer. And mm. I think it takes more time than that. And what is a fully-fledged lawyer now? I mean, kind of, you know, is there a duty of technological competence now? Well, that's an interesting question. And um, it's a very interesting question, one that might actually cause some lawyers to feel quite anxious. Um, <laughs> Makes me feel a little bit anxious. Yeah, I, you know, for years I taught um, a decision of NRMA and Hayden, which is quite an old one now, which mm. was heard in the New South Wales Court of Appeal against the former high, high court judge, but he wasn't then a high court judge, mm. um, Dyson Hayden, when he was a barrister. And the question was whether he'd been negligent in failing to appraise himself of a forthcoming judgment of the high court. And right. the reason I used to, and he was, it was found in his favour and he wasn't found to be negligent and all the rest of it, but the reason I used to show it to my students was, I used to say, you know, now that we've got email alerts and everything's online and this sort of thing, is it is it good enough to use the old-fashioned types of research skills to be able mm. to keep yourself up to date? And I posited or I posed for consideration the suggestion that I wonder if we do have, if our standards of competence were you know, back in those days um, mm. you know, changing and I think it's moved on even more since then. And, <laughs> and yet the, Justice, the former Justice Hayden still doesn't read his own emails. Yeah, really interesting and I, and I think that these sorts of things I think are real questions that are facing the profession about what that, what that might mean and whether it does comprise a professional duty. But I don't think that the solution to this is allowing students to play around with, with e-discovery as the sole solution. And I don't think that including one week's lectures on blockchain in your contract class is going to, maybe in place of the postal rule, I don't know, uh, <laughs> is going to... Do we still have a postal rule? I, I can't, sorry. I'm sorry, I can't talk about the postal rule. It makes me too upset. So, so no, I, I just don't think that, that that is the answer to this. I think we need a comprehensive overview of not just what our students are learning but how they are learning mm. and how we are structuring their learning experiences till we get to the point of what we might understand to be a fully-fledged lawyer. And I don't know that this report necessarily grapples with that foundational question of what that fully formed lawyer looks like. Mm. Perhaps it's time for a, a flip report in the specific context of legal education in Australia in order to really dig into those issues directly. Um, I, I think that 
it's now a number of years since the uh, threshold learning outcomes, the discipline standards came mm. up. That was never meant to be set in stone. That was always meant to be a living document and something mm. that's revisited. I think it's time to revisit that. I think it's time to revisit the Priestley 11. But I'd call on the regulators to really start to immerse themselves in thinking about contemporary practice and the future of the profession and for the regulators to revisit even the Priestley 11 and the requirements for admission because I think we need something of a shake-up all around. Well, on that note, Kate, <laughs> for a call for the shake-up of the legal profession, I think we'll call it a day. Thanks so much, Melissa. Thank you, Kate. You've been listening to Law Radio with Kate Galloway and Melissa Caston. You can follow us on Twitter and you can follow the Law Radio blog at lawradio.net. See you next time.